Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. In the world today, we are no longer judged by our merits, or by the content of our character, or our work ethic, or our personality, or any of the myriad things that we used to strive so hard to maintain. No, today is really nothing but a game of intersectionality bingo. How many spaces, how many oppressions can you dob on your card? To even suggest being different as good is wrong. To suggest racism is wrong, is wrong. To suggest that we see each other for all the similarities and differences that we have and yet see each other as humans, as image bearers of God, is wrong. No, today is all about how many levels of oppression define me and what do I deserve. So that said, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the classic fairy tale of Snow POC and the Seven Dudes. Then we'll clarify how it's racist to fight against racism, and then we'll wrap up with a story about how in order for justice to be just, it must be blind, except for skin color. So grab your intersectionality bingo card and your oppression dauber, and hey, here we go. So Disney, in their quest to make more and more money in order to feed the ever-ravenous mouse, continue to remake the animated movies that multiple generations have grown up with as live-action. Now, personally, I have no problem with this. I think it can make a nice addition to a Disney movie or just a general movie library. But, of course, since we live in this era, we can't just remake the cartoons essentially the same you know, just with real people and big-budget special effects. No, we need to make sure that we wokeify them. The last thing Disney or any company wants to do is to have the woke mob of snowflakes screaming at the sky in front of their headquarters and going on Twitter rants and TikTok rants trying to get them canceled. Enter Snow White. Oh. Which Disney executive thought this was going to go well? You got the whitest of white people as the central character and seven dwarves. This is not how woke is done. Now, this remake has been underway for a while, but it's recently come into the news because Peter Dinklage, the four foot four tall actor who has played Miles Finch, you know, the angry elf from the movie Elf, and Tyrion Lannister, if I'm saying that right, from Game of Thrones, which I've never seen an episode of, as well as parts on a ton of other movies, just look him up, he had himself a little expletive-laden rant on the WTF podcast with Mark Maron. His issue? That Disney is still literally planning on remaking something with dwarves, seven little people, who live in a cave. Mr. Dinklage said, quote, Take a step back and look at what you're doing there. It makes no sense to me. You're progressive in one way, but then you're still making that effing backward story about seven dwarves living in a cave together. What the F are you doing, man? Have I done nothing to advance the cause for my soapbox? I guess I'm not loud enough. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, Dinklage, whose net worth is somewhere around $25 million, you know, just, just a little bit above mine, uh... Uh, He seems to have done fairly well playing roles for and as a little person. 
But I don't know. Maybe he's been a huge advocate for, um, I, I, well, I don't really know, to be honest. Not, I'm not really sure here. Now, Mr. Dinklage did say that he could be on board for this movie, though. If you tell the story of Snow White with the most effed up, cool, or progressive spin, let's do it. All in, he says. Well, fortunately, we're talking about Disney, and if there's one thing they seem to be taking to heart, it's requests to do movies, TV shows, and everything else they're involved in, in the most, let's say, screwed up, progressive way possible. I mean, just look what they've done with Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They definitely have a woke, progressive agenda. So after this little rant, Disney responded and they said, quote, to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film, we are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with the members of the dwarfism community. We look forward to sharing more as the film heads into production after a lengthy development period. Good. Stereotypes. Bad, right? Dwarfism community. That's a thing, and that's good, right? Good. They're speaking with them. Well, okay, so we're going to talk about some of these stereotypes in just a minute. First, we do know who has been cast for Snow White. Rachel Ziegler? Zegler? I don't really know. A nearly 21-year-old Latina, Latinx, I don't really know, person of color, person of color for Snow White, who was named for the fact that her skin was white as snow. Now, I looked up Miss Ziegler. She's an attractive young woman. I'm sure she's a fine actress, but unless she plans on playing this in whiteface, she's not able to pull off Snow White. I mean, unless maybe they changed the story to where the evil queen forced her to go out and do a lot of gardening. So she gets one heck of a solid base tan. I, 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 don't, I don't really know. Moving to the dwarves, I'm telling you right now, I seriously doubt we'll actually see dwarves in this movie. Um, or at least nothing like we remember seeing in the cartoon. But as Disney said, we want to try to break those stereotypes. And what are the stereotypes of these dwarves? Well, from what I can find from the written story, which we'll, we'll go over in just a minute, and what's generally found in the movie, the seven dwarves were hardworking. They were non-judgmental. They were accepting they were very protective. They were very loyal. And they ended up being the heroes in this story, in all reality. So, yeah, I can see how being short would just ruin all that, because I guess the stereotype that we just can't let stand is that those with conditions broadly classified as dwarfism, you know, they're short. That's not progressive. That's hateful. We can't do that especially if we use the D word. No, not that one. That one's okay. Uh, no, that one's also fine. I mean dwarf. Now, that being said, have you ever read the actual original Grimm Brothers Snow White? I hadn't, but I have now. And I hadn't seen the 1938 Snow White animated movie in a long time. But I've skipped through it just recently because I wanted to compare. Look, I know we all know this already, but the Disney movie and... All of these Disney movies that were made from old stories, it's just a shell of the actual story. 
that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is. Now, the original Grimm Brothers story starts with Snow White's actual mother, the Queen, pre-Snow White. She's doing her embroidery on a winter's day, and she pricks her finger. She then wishes that at some point she would have a child as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as the wood of the embroidery frame. Now, shortly after, she gives birth to a child with skin white as snow, lips red as blood, hair black as ebony. And then, of course, as it always happens, the mother dies, right? So the king remarries, and the new queen, who, you know, of course is evil, has her magic mirror, and up until the point that Snow White hits seven, seven years old, the mirror told the queen that she was the fairest of all. Now, at seven years old, Snow White took that top spot, according to the mirror, which at this point I think should probably be on some sort of a registry or in some sort of a database. Kids, seven. Shortly after that, the queen orders the huntsman to take, again, the seven-year-old child into the woods and kill her and bring back her heart. Now, of course, he can't do it, so he let her go. She ran. A boar came by, so he killed that, took the heart back to the queen, who did not put it in a box, but who had it salted and cooked for her to eat. You have to understand, she ate what she believed was the heart of the seven-year-old daughter of the king, her husband. She was a flipping cannibal. She was a cannibal. Anyway, the movie loosely follows the story after this point for a, for a while. Although in the story, Snow White finds a very neat and tidy home. In the movie, it's a mess and she cleans it up. The story has kind of a Goldilocks type moment when the dwarves come home as they ask, who touched my little fork and who ate from my little loaf and who's been eating from my little plate? I guarantee you're not going to hear that dialogue in the movie. Then the queen, whose dirty rat of a mirror keeps snitching on Snow White as being alive, tries to kill Snow White three times. Each time the dwarves warn the child not to let any strangers into the house. Her life was in danger. Each time the queen disguised herself as a different peddler woman. Each time the kid lets the queen in. The first time she sold Snow White lace and laced her up so tight that she fell to the ground because she couldn't breathe. The queen went away thinking she had killed the child. The dwarves come back. They found her. They save her. They warn her again. And the second time was a poisoned comb that apparently caused her to pass out as if dead when it touched her hair somehow. That's some pretty stiff poison. Again, the dwarves come back, they find her, they remove the comb, and she revives. The third time was the apple. The dwarves came back, found her, tried to save her, but they couldn't. They did not want to bury the child because she still looked as if she was alive, only sleeping, so they placed her in a glass and gold coffin. Now the prince comes and begs to have the presumed dead child in the glass coffin for himself, as he just must have her to look at. I mean, this is creepy. Now the dwarves finally relent, and the prince's servants pick up the coffin, go to carry it away, and they stumble, causing the coffin to shake and a bit of poison apple to fall out of her mouth, and then she revives. Sorry, no love's true kiss here. Just a chunk of partially chewed poison fruit. I mean, come on. That's one of the first things that I was taught in CPR. Sweep the mouth, people. Check the airway for obstructions. Come on, dwarves. Anyway, the story doesn't appear to progress much in time, meaning that the child is still seven-ish. 
but the prince just must marry her, and she agrees. But I guess when you look it up, the story was written in 1812 in Germany. The average lifespan in Germany at that time, the early 1800s, was just under 40. I mean, I guess you got to get moving on these things. There's not a whole lot of time to waste. Still, though, feels wrong. Anyway, to wrap up the story is written, because at this point the movie ends with a nice happily ever after, right? The way they all do. The queen was invited to the wedding. The mirror tells her that the young bride is a thousand times more fair than her, which made her very angry. Understatement. She went to the wedding because her rage and jealousy made it so that she just must see who it could be that is more fair than her. And when she gets there, she sees it's Snow White. And then she has red hot iron shoes clamped to her feet that they had ready for, and she's made to dance until she dies. The end. Whew, I mean, dang, these stories were brutal, right? So what do we learn from the movie? What eternal truths do we find? Now, I have really had to put some thought into this question, and to be honest, I don't know. I would say that in some cases we see compassion, right? The huntsman couldn't kill the child. The dwarves found someone different from them in their home, and Snow White found little men different than her, and and neither one of them cared about that. They didn't care about the differences. They took care of each other. And then we learned that everything will work out in the end and life will be lived happily ever after. There's no resolution for the evil queen's hatred, the jealousy, or attempted murder. There's really no moral to the story that I could find. The, the prince really isn't a hero. He wanted to kiss a dead child in the movie. That's a little weird. Now, as I already stated, the dwarves are really the heroes of the story. Even in the movie, they are the most honorable of the entire cast of characters. In the written story, we actually get some additional morals to the story. We can more clearly see the results of jealousy and anger with real consequences for actions taken stemming from this blind hatred for people that are perceived as better than. We see in some sense the result of not listening to or, or obeying your parents or parental figures as Snow White did not listen to the dwarves that were trying to care for and protect her. But in the written story, we see the dwarves again as the heroes. They may have been different, but they were exactly who Snow White needed. They were protectors, friends, father figures, providers. They were loyal and they were loving. Do I need to go into the biblical parallels to these lessons? to the characteristics of the dwarves? So although I have no idea how you pull off a Snow White using a darker-complected actress, that's honestly the least of my concern. I'm afraid that due to the woke machine, the, the anger, the addiction to hurt feelings, and the capitulation we've seen in recent history from Disney, combined with the utter cluelessness of most writers and producers in the movie industry today... The dwarves will be changed, they'll be modernized, they'll be mainstreamed, they'll be woked, and the result will be a complete loss of the true heroes of this story. Well, 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 we finally have the proof for what we've all suspected. The Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, is a massive racist and white supremacist, and he's so stupid, which we already knew, I mean, he's proven that over and over again, am I right? that he literally doesn't even realize that he's outing himself 
or worse yet, he might be doing this on purpose. The mask coming off and Whitey is going to try to rise up and enslave the Negro man again. It's coming. Or maybe not. From Essence.com, the headline, Florida governor pushes bill to shield white people from discomfort with America's racist past. I'd like to note two things about this headline. First, thank you, Ms. Well, I'm assuming Ms. Ashley Banks, for capitalizing all the main words in the headline. Second, she put the word discomfort in quotes, implying that that specific word was said as the specific reason Governor White Guy DeSantis is pushing this bill. So let's see if that's the case, shall we? The opening paragraph states, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is doing everything in his power to ban teaching about racism, which Republicans have incorrectly identified as critical race theory. Okay, let me stop you right there, Ms. Banks. We know that critical race theory is a real thing, and she does actually talk about this, albeit briefly farther down. We'll get to that. She says that all they want to do at the job site or in the classroom is to teach about racism, but that the evil white publicans want to stop that so they're labeling it CRT so that they can demonize it so that they won't have to teach it so whites, ergo, aren't uncomfortable by the subject and can keep living their supremacist lives with no guilt. Let's continue on, shall we? The bill in question is SB 148, named the Individual Freedom Bill. Of course, the word freedom is just a dog whistle, obviously. The bill was introduced by Senator Manny Diaz, a classic white name if I've ever heard one. Ms. Banks says that, quote, the legislation not only prohibits students from learning about racism in school, but it also forbids employers from requiring employees undergo things like discrimination training. Now, as a past, current, and hopefully continuing future employee, not in Florida, but in global companies, I can say that every company I've worked for has taken their inclusivity or diversity or discrimination training and policies very, very seriously, and with good reason. When you enter the, shall we say, pagan workplace, you must understand that you're in the midst of the world. You will likely encounter a very diverse group of individuals, and personally, I believe that as a Christian, you should always be ready to give an answer, but your employer is not paying you to evangelize the workplace, and as Christians, we are to work for our employer as if we're working for God, amongst the diversity of the world. So you need to know your personal boundaries, what you can accept and what you can't, and understand that it's not your mission to force the workplace into reformation. Therefore, if your workplace has pushed up to or beyond what you find acceptable, it's up to you to move on to somewhere more tolerable. Remember, non-Christians act like non-Christians because they're not Christians, and this means it work too. We should not expect them to act like Christians if they're not. So that rabbit trail to say this, I have a hard time seeing the, quote, discrimination training going away, as Ms. Banks implies, but let's continue on. Now, she goes on to very carefully and very selectively quote a few excerpts of sections of the bill, including the portion that states, quote, an individual should not be made to feel discomfort, there it is, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race. Well, I mean, okay, that, that seems agreeable to me. She then moves to the classroom, where she takes particular umbrage with, quote, 
classroom instruction, and curriculum may not be used to indoctrinate or persuade students to a particular point of view inconsistent with the principles of this subsection or state academic standards. I mean, that also seems like a good idea, but maybe that's because I'm just clearly racist. Now, let me break into the article here for just a moment to point out a few things, and we'll get back to it. First, I wonder if she's actually read the bill. I mean, it's only 18 pages, and a lot of that is wording that's been struck through, so really it's a good deal less than 18 pages of actual reading. My theory is that she skimmed it, looking for things she could use to justify her anger, because nothing she's railed against are actually bad things unless you're looking at this through a lens of racism, specifically white supremacy and suspicion of all whites, and anger and hatred towards whites. Second, nowhere in the bill does it mention critical race theory or CRT, not once. Now, how do I know? Well, I did a magical search of the entire document using Control-F. I'll give you her tie-in with CRT in a moment. Third, nowhere in this bill does it mention a specific race, color, sex, or national origin. The bill uses the generic labels race, color, sex, or national origin. Her premise that this shields whites is simply based in her anger and, frankly, her hatred for white people, which, if you were to boil it down into a single word, is racist. Back to the article. Ms. Banks ties this bill to CRT by stating that Governor DeSantis termed CRT, quote, crap at a press conference a month prior and that he would push for a bill that would allow parents and employees to take legal action against the schools and employers, respectively, if they were forced into CRT training. Okay, I guess this is the bill he was referencing. Then she gives a very thorough explanation for CRT. She states, quote, critical race theory was developed among legal scholars in the 1980s, and it studies how U.S. laws and institutional practices uphold white supremacy, end quote. <clears throat> that, that, was, that was it. And as proof, she linked to another Essence article from April 2021 entitled, Conservatives Want to Ban Studies That Examine Racism. Searching for the background, since this is what she linked as the backing evidence for the development of CRT, as she cited in her article, we find a paragraph, quote, Critical race theory is a long-standing branch of legal scholarship developed originally by black law professor Derek Bell that examines how racism impacts the law. Okay, well, that doesn't... Wait a minute, hold on, there's another link. This one links to a book, Critical Race Theory, Past, Present, and Future, written in 1998. In it, it states, quote, Bell was one of a small but growing group of scholars and minority activists who realized that the gains for the heady civil rights era had stalled and indeed were being rolled back. Huh. Traditional methods such as litigation, exhortation, and marching were yielding fewer and fewer gains. New approaches were necessary to cope with the less sympathetic public and the more nuanced forms of racism that were developing. To which I, I guess I would respond, a hogwash. Maybe the public was becoming less and less sympathetic because the public was moving farther and farther away from considering blacks as, quote, them, 
to the understanding and realization that blacks are the same as us, maybe the gains had come very close to the actual goal. Maybe Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream was becoming a reality. Maybe the activists wanted not equality, but vengeance and retribution. And that is exactly what CRT promotes. I would commend Vody Bauckham's latest book, Fault Lines, for an excellent explanation of what exactly critical theory, critical race theory, and social justice are, and the roots of these founded in Marxism. By the way, Vody is a black man who has the background to speak very knowledgeably on the subject. He explains that in the book. But to boil down CRT, it's basically a religion that proclaims all white humans, and Christians, regardless of color, they're basically lumped into this as well, that all of them are racist, have always been racist, will always be racist, and there's nothing that we can do to change it. There's nothing we can do to stop it, and we can't make it better. We can never fully atone for our white sins, but we should be forced to do whatever penance has been decided perpetually. Now, to me, and maybe this is just because I'm white, that seems racist. If I were to substitute black for white in that previous definition, I'm curious how well that dog would hunt. So, just for fun, let's see what this bill really says, shall we? And obviously, I'm not reading the entire bill. The link is in the notes. You can look it up if you'd like. I'm going to give a quick summary here. Regarding employers, they can't force anyone as a condition of employment or anything that goes with it any training that pushes a one-side, discriminatory view based on race, color, sex, or national origin, which I'll call groups, in the following ways. They can't say that members of one group is morally superior to another group. They can't say that members of one group are racist just for being part of that group. That being a member of a group predetermines their morality or their privilege or oppressed status. That individuals... They say that individuals can't be disrespectful to others. Seems, seems okay. They say that members of one group cannot be held responsible for the past actions of others that happen to be of that same group. They say that members of a group can't be treated adversely just to advance members of another group. And that members of a group can't be made to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, etc. because they're a member of that group. And they can't teach that members of a group created merit, excellence, hard work, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial colorblindness because of racism toward another group. This section is wrapped up by saying it's not actually prohibiting the discussion of these topics. It's simply making illegal the indoctrination by only teaching one side of a view as fact pertaining to these subjects. As for the schools, they list first what must be taught, reproductive health materials, which must be approved annually, and then the curriculum that they teach must be professionally done and historically accurate, and it must teach the following things. The Declaration of Independence, its history and content, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the history and the content and the government structure, why the USA is a republic, they must teach flag education, the functions of a civil government, the factual history of the U.S. from the discovery, the wars, etc., through present day, including the civil rights movement to the present day, specifically called out, must teach the history of the Holocaust, including an in-depth look at human behavior with regard to prejudice, racism, and stereotyping. 
They must teach African-American history, including prior to slavery, enslavement, abolition, and their contributions to America. They must teach the effects of drugs and alcohol, to be kind to animals, the history of Florida, conservation of natural resources, health, nutrition, personal safety, internet safety, etc., etc., and on and on it goes. Then they turn to what must not be taught. Uh, they cannot teach that people can be inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive because of their group. They can't teach that one race is superior to another, that discrimination based on race is okay, that meritocracy, such as hard work, is racist, that a member of a group is responsible for actions committed by another member of a group in the past, that a person should be made to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race. Once again, these topics can be discussed as long as it's not done as a one-sided indoctrination session. You can take it from there if you want. If you're curious of the specifics of the bill, the link is in the notes, like I said. But does any of this sound racist? I mean, literally, we could put any race or any other group or trait or ability or disability into these very specific with regard to instruction, generalize with regard to individuals, laws. I could easily use current data to show how whites are superior to blacks, and that would be just fine if Ms. Banks has her way. She's so caught up in her anger and agenda that she feels that this has nothing to do specifically with CRT. It has to do with the fact that we're all humans and all Americans. America doesn't have a perfect past, and it needs to be factually taught. In fact, I think that codifying the mandate to teach things like slavery and civil rights is silly, as we should teach our complete history by default, all of it, good and bad, as those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And doesn't it feel, as we see racial tensions rise, as we see statues removed, as we see history rewritten, as we see segregation taking place, as if we're on the precipice of repeating our dark past right now? So, I have covered and I will cover again the fact that we're not races. We're one race, the human race. We're created in the image of God. It happened a short time ago, about 6,000 years or so. And we all came from Adam and Eve, funneled down to come from Noah's sons and their wives. I'm opting not to cover that again in this review. But maybe, just maybe, if we keep that in mind, maybe teach that in schools and progress from a thinking that originated from the mostly unscientific theory of evolution, maybe that would be better. Just saying. But the root cause of the problem when you start asking why, why does the author think this way, and why do her reference sources think this way, and why did this happen, and on and on, you find the root. You find a, a disregard, a dismissal of God from our lives. We see this all the way back to Adam and Eve, believing that they can be his God. The Israelites over and over disregarded God, worshiping idols, made by human hands, created in human minds, and then they fell into turmoil or enslavement. And they repented and prayed for rescue, and then they were rescued, and then they worshiped God, and then they enjoyed peace and maybe some prosperity, and, and then lather, rinse, repeat. We see the disregard for humanity by the Jewish nation and the Samaritans, technically brothers, but neither was of the correct stock, so hatred ruled. We see a division between Jews and Gentiles, and of course, as you move up through our more modern history, we see wars and genocides based on the perceived superiority of one culture over another, with 
the most off-sided example of Hitler and his views of other ethnicities as being at various evolutionary stages, some percentage of Homo sapiens, some percentage of ape, Jews being almost purely ape, blacks being mostly ape, and so on. He, he had a chart. And what do we see being preached by the majority of the, quote, popular megachurch, quote, pastors? And what do we see being promoted by the most commonly known Christian television stations? And what do we see as the most popular Christian books? Topics like heaven tourism and prosperity and health and how God wants to give you everything you dreamed of if you only have enough faith and rather than real teaching on sin and repentance and hell and Christ and salvation and heaven and laws and rules and sanctification and the gospel, we get self-help seminars sandwiched between rock concerts with apologies if more than two verses are read in a row, with five points to do this and seven points to have a better that or ten ways to get your kids to be the other or whatever. If this sounds eerily familiar, if it sounds like I'm describing your Sunday morning experience, if you can't remember what the message was about when you hit the parking lot, but you're still rocking to the tunes you just heard, I'd encourage you to pray very hard about finding a church that teaches the actual gospel. In fact, send me a message. I'd be glad to help you think this through and give you some good resources. We are moving swiftly back to the segregation, the hatred, the belief that one color, one ethnicity is superior to another. And if we don't learn, we're only a few short steps away from enslavement of one people group by another people group, once again. We can see the same pattern being played out in America that the Israelites thousands of years ago showed us coming true in our own time. A return to God, the real God, not the one preached by these charlatans, is the only way out. Basing our teaching on made-up history, lies, anger, while systematically eliminating our past, at the same time systematically removing God from public life, relegating him or imprisoning him behind the doors of the church and removing the concept of true truth will get us what we're getting. If we want to have any hope, we must move our lives, our society, from the sandy land to the rock. Personally, I'm an optimist, but a realist. And although I'd like to feel that we can get back to the true truth as a society, I believe that if we continue to tarry on this earth, things will become much worse before they become better. But my hope comes from the Lord, and he has provided me with the firm foundation that I can base my life on, even when the world around me is crumbling. Let me encourage you to come and join me. No doubt you have seen various statues of Lady Justice, a woman holding scales in one hand, a sword in the other, with a blindfold over her eyes. The blindfold, as you likely know, is there to represent the concept that justice is blind. There are laws, there are criminals, there are victims, and there are those who are innocent of what they've been accused. The justice system cares not for wealth or power, ethnicity or color, male or female, or any other characteristic of either party. The justice system cares only for justice according to the law. Found on MSN, but really everywhere, headline, Biden nominee would be first Muslim woman to serve as federal judge. Aha! This is definitely off to a great start. According to the article, eight nominations were made to federally appointed judicial positions, but the most important one, apparently, is a name I'm going to butcher, Nusrat Jahan Choudhury. Now, why is she this important? 
Well, they give her credentials, but they specifically ensure we know that she's the first Muslim American woman to be nominated to the federal judiciary. She's the first Bangladeshi American to be nominated. She would be the first Muslim American woman to serve as a federal judge, and she'd be the second Muslim American to be appointed as a federal judge. Now, they continue in the article with the other nominees. Ariana Freeman, she'd be the first African-American woman to serve on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Anna Isabel de Alba, she'd be the first Latina, shouldn't this be Latinx if you care about people, or Latinx, to serve on the Eastern District of California. Nina Nin Yon Wong would be the second Asian-American to serve the United States District Court. And then we have Tiffany Cartwright, Robert Stephen Huey, and Jennifer Reardon, who are just a bunch of whiteies, so they don't matter. Finally, we have, I think, the most intriguing one of all, Natasha Merle. She appears to be an African-American, but apparently she's just a generic run-of-the-mill one or something because the author of the article didn't say anything about her. Racist. In the nomination statement that President Jojo definitely wrote all by himself, it stated, quote, These choices also continue to fulfill the president's promise to ensure that the nation's courts reflect the diversity that is one of our greatest assets as a country. And let it be known, Biden set this goal to nominate more women and people of color, unlike orange man bad President Trump. <laughs> let me just make a side comment here. Women? I mean binary genderist much? Trump, like the male chauvinist white supremacist he is, nominated 85% white and 76% men of the 274 judges he appointed to the federal judicial positions, which means he nominated 66 women and 41 non-crackers. Biden has nominated 81 total, out of which 78%, or 63, are women, and 53%, or 43, have been people of color. So, see... It's right there, clear as crystal. Racist, misogynist, probably other types of ists. So question, if justice is blind, why does it matter what gender, color, or ethnicity the judge is? Why does it matter that diversity of the courts reflects the diversity in the country? If a judge rules by law, and all humans are subject to the law, how would this even matter? I realize that in days gone by, some laws were racist or were sexist, but those were, as I said, days gone by. This is nothing but pandering, just playing to the woke mob base that the leftists, or socialists, have demanded. But this, in itself, is literally racist and sexist, not only in Biden's appointment strategy, but also in the article in question. Racism has nothing to do with color or ethnicity. It's not solely a thing done against blacks, for instance, or a fill-in-the-blank with color of skin or whatever. It's quite literally holding a view that a certain skin color is differently and less abled than another. That someone is lesser than someone else because of their skin color or country of origin. This article headlines with talking about the first Muslim woman, which is a religion, not a race, but the left treats it as if it's a race all of its own. If it outlined Ms. Choudhury and stopped there, it would have been fine, but they didn't. They continued to name all of these first, giving them their due, and then it grouped all the white breads and one black woman, who's the one who should really be angry here, into a lump of also-rans at the end. They determined their rank of importance, topped with Muslim. 
because they have a narrative to push, an agenda rooted in racist ideologies. Biden, by making a pledge to hire more women and minorities, has made it very clear that he and his handlers don't believe minorities and women are smart enough or good enough to hold these judicial positions. But he's appointing them, you say. How could you say that? Because he believes that these individuals need extra help in order to do this. They're just not capable based on their own skills and abilities and merits. But like Danny Trejo says in the movie Anchorman, You know, times are changing. Ladies can do stuff now. And this applies to people of every color, every ethnicity, of either gender, of any religion. All these people, at least in America, at least for now, can do stuff now. Why do we need to put qualifiers like a Muslim Bangladeshi American or Latina American? Why can't we just be Americans? Now, don't get me wrong. I really don't have a problem, for the most part, when someone is called out as the first of whatever. Agree with it or not, this woman potentially being seated as the first Muslim woman to hold a federal judgeship position, okay, that should be a footnote in the history books. But what should seat her should be her qualifications, her track record, and in this case, her unwavering demonstrated commitment to upholding the rule of law. And as a side note, based on her qualifications, legal director of a chapter of the ACLU, served as the deputy director of the National ACLU Racial Justice Program, I'd say hard pass on this one. The Bible speaks over and over about justice. Justice is simply following the rule of law. That's really it. It has nothing to do with anything else, just the law. Habakkuk nails the issue we're seeing today when he cries out to God in part, The law is ignored and justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out confused. If that doesn't sound like today, I don't know what does. In Deuteronomy, as Moses recounts setting up the various judges in the towns and cities and regions, he says that they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Well, if that's followed, then it only matters what the law is, not the demographics of anyone concerned. And again, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses, again recounting the judicial appointments, says, And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. Whoa, wait a minute. We're supposed to judge even the person that's not like us with righteous judgment according to the law? Amazing. And this is exactly how God in his mercy has determined to judge us. We're not judged based on if we're Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all image bearers of God. Don't get me wrong. I didn't say children of God. I said image bearers of God. There is one race the human race, in various shades, shapes, features, languages, traditions, and yes, even religions. We're all judged justly by the ultimate judge, God himself, as to our keeping of the law. For those that have repented for their sins, who have recognized their wickedness when compared to a holy God and his holy laws, and who have confessed their belief that who Jesus is, is who he claimed to be, that he came to earth of a virgin, lived a sinless life since we couldn't, died the death that we deserve, and conquered sin, death, and hell, raising from the dead after three days, and is now in heaven waiting for his father to tell him to go get his bride. In short, if we are saved, we will now be judged, not based on our own merits, not based on the law, but justly judged based on the substitution that Christ gives to us by his sacrifice, by Christ's upholding of the law. 
this is mercy, and this is still justice, and this is blind as to your demographic. For those of you who are not saved, you too will be judged, but since you have not repented and do not believe, then you will be judged based on your works, your keeping of the law. Revelation 20 shows this final process. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, if we don't have Christ as our substitute, if we're not written in the book of life, nothing we have done will ever be good enough to avoid an eternity in the lake of fire. The smallest breaking of God's laws is the breaking of a law of the most holy and most high judge, which is the ultimate offense we could commit, requiring the ultimate penalty that we cannot repay even in an eternity of punishment. This, as God is the lawmaker, the lawgiver, and the judge, is also justice. And this is also blind as to your demographic. As humans, we won't always get this process right, but using power as this president and many presidents have done on either side of the aisle to make appointments in a racist manner to enact racial justice, meaning to judge with race as one of the determining factors, is not merciful, is not just, and is not in following the edicts and examples set forth in the Bible. It is in fact sinful and racist to its very core. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.